This time of year held a very special place in my heart as a child. I mean, yes, it was fall and the fall colors and the cooler temperatures and Halloween's right on the corner and hayrides. Those were all great, but there was something even more significant that happened in the fall, and it came in the mail. It was 500 pages of glossy happiness. It was the Sears catalog, right? The holiday wish book. And I would spend hours and hours laying on the, like the living room floor, just circling all the things that I wanted for Christmas. And there were these full-color photos like He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. It was a world beyond fantasy. I could own my own arcade games right in my house. And they had Star Wars and Dukes of Hazzard. It was like this magical world that existed where all the toys were. And my family loved Sears. America loved Sears. You could get anything from Sears. I mean, where else could you go to buy fine jewelry, a lawnmower, fishing tackle, a Cuisinart and tires for your car, all in one easy-to-use mail-order form? It was Sears. Sears, yeah, Amazon now, right? But uh, Sears started back in the late 1800s, actually right here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. They started as this little company that was selling watches that nobody else wanted. And over the next century, they changed the way America shopped. They changed the way the world shopped. They were innovators who changed the way that we live. Back in the early 20th century, I didn't know this. Sears sold kit homes where they would actually ship you all the things you needed, all the materials and all the supplies that you needed to build your own bungalow house for $450. And those houses are actually still standing today. I can't put together IKEA furniture. <laughs> but somehow people were able to put together their own houses. And they brought all kinds of innovations, brands such as Craftsman Tools and Kenmore Appliances and Discover Card and Allstate Insurance. Sears was the place. They had it all and they sold it all. In the 1980s, they were on top of the world, top of their game. They were the biggest retailer in the world. They had the tallest building in the world. And every home in America had a catalog for Sears and a whole generation of little boys just like me, mesmerized by all this stuff. And then the 90s. <laughs> and then the 90s happened. The internet happened. Walmart happened. And times got hard for Sears. People didn't need one shop where they could get all these different things. People had no use for a glossy 500-page catalog, and so sales plummet, plummeted. And Sears began sort of a slow descent. The company tried to adjust, tried to reinvent themselves, but it was too little too late. In 2004, they got a brief shot in the arm when this amazing company was going to come and save everything and, and bought them out. They were called Kmart. And we all know how that savior worked out. And slowly, the big, beautiful stores got emptier and emptier, and the, chip, the paint began to chip. The parking lot started sprouting weeds. The buildings weren't kept up, and they became old, antiquated relics. Museums to a bygone era in American history. And the news came out this week that Sears filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And the report that I heard, the reporter actually said, they're just basically hoping to make it through Christmas, and then they'll just kind of shutter the whole thing. And the commentators that I've heard have already started you know, listing all the things that Sears could have done along the way to save themselves. Decisions that they made all along the way that, that could have brought them into the 21st century. Decisions to, to go online, to modernize themselves, to reinvent themselves, to migrate everything online. But it's all sort of Monday morning quarterbacking at this point. And even if they're right, it, it's kind of too late to do anything about it. Well, I think in some ways... This is a loose analogy, but in some ways, I think you can track this journey that Sears has been on in the 21st century and compare it to the journey that the church 
in America has been on in the 21st century. I mean, throughout most of its history, the church has been an innovator that changed the world. The church led the way with some amazing innovations, building hospitals and schools and orphanages, caring for the poor and the marginalized. The church changed the way we did society in this culture. The church accomplished so much good. I mean, our nation was formed in many ways on sort of christian principles. I mean, maybe not perfectly and maybe not totally and with some glaring exceptions. But we thought of ourselves for most of our history as a Christian nation. There was a time when virtually every home in America had a Bible. There was a time when virtually every American on Sunday mornings could be found sitting in the pew of a church. We built huge cathedrals and and huge churches and these mega churches that were the size of malls. We filled the seats every Sunday. But then, kind of like Sears, change happened and decline started to happen. Scandals happened. Abuses happened. News reports were filled of these stories of horrible things that happened within the church and increasingly people over the last few decades began to see the church much like they saw Sears, except far worse. I mean, I think people still like the concept of church. I mean, they came to church wanting community. And what they found instead was judgment, a church where it wasn't okay to bring your brokenness or your questions or your doubts, where you couldn't bring all of yourself. They wanted to be involved. They wanted to to really have a role in impacting the life and the impact of the church. And what they experienced instead was bureaucracy and bad church politics and infighting. They came wanting conversations like, okay, I know you believe this, but where does it say that in the Bible? And why did God give us this kind of arbitrary boundary? And how do we actually live that out in real life, in grace and in love and in truth? How do we do that? They wanted conversation. And what they got was sort of cold, hard, dead doctrine. I think most of all, they wanted to be meaningfully engaged with the world in tangible ways. And what they got instead was sort of moral prescription, like this list of rules. If you just follow these things, and oh, by the way, we're going to leave out a whole lot of what Scripture says about money and about the poor and about all these other things. But if you just kind of keep it to like don't have sex and drink and dance, and that's Christianity. Read your Bible. And as a result, I think many came to believe, maybe rightly, that the church was no longer relevant to their actual lives. Like a 500-page glossy catalog, no matter how beautiful it is, they just didn't need it anymore. It served no purpose. And in response, people said, we're done. If this, mean, if this is what it means to follow Christ, if this is what it means to be a part of your religion, then we're out, we're done They came to believe that they had a better chance of finding God away from God's people. And the church in America began its slow descent. And slowly the big, beautiful buildings, the churches got emptier and emptier. And the paint began to chip. And the parking lots began to spring sprouting weeds. The buildings weren't kept up and they became old, antiquated relics, museums to a bygone era in American history, in church history. And so, so what's the answer? I mean, do we now try to reinvent ourselves? Do we try to go more online with our sales and our marketing? Do we massage our message to make it more palatable? Do we dress up the church and all of this kind of stuff to make it more hip, more sexy, more engaging, more cutting edge? Do 
we lower our standards? Do we make it easier to get in? Do we lower the bar to make it more accessible, more acceptable to any and all? Do we see if Kmart wants to buy us out? <laughs> Maybe. And, and I think some of those strategies are worth talking about. But the thing is, I don't think they really get to the heart of the matter. I don't think they get to the existential question that Sears needed to ask itself and failed to ask itself and that we need to ask ourselves today as the church. And it's not primarily a marketing question or a positioning question or a communication question. I think the question we have to ask is, isn't, isn't, is not, why don't they see how relevant we are? I think the question that we have to ask ourselves, and there's a place to write this down, is are we actually relevant? Are we actually relevant? And I don't mean more hip and cool. I mean, is the church actually accomplishing what it was created for? Are we actually being the kind of community that 2,000 years ago was attracting thousands of people a day and changed the world? I think the, the Sears analogy, of course, breaks down because we, of course, don't peddle He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. We don't peddle any of the wares that they have. We don't sell tools or jewelries, gizmos and gadgets. What we sell, what we market, isn't actually even contrary to popular belief you know, really great sermons full of helpful advice for better living, although we think those have a role. It isn't primarily about great music that helps us get through the week, although we want to do that. It isn't about great kids programs that are fun and that our kids want to go to, although we think that kids programs are a great part of the how we get to the what that we're called to be. But the problem is all of those things, all of those programs look a whole lot like commodities, they look a whole lot like things that you can rate, that you can, you can rate on Yelp, just like a restaurant or, or a website or Sears. But the church isn't in the business of commodities, not biblically. In Scripture, the primary activity that we as the people of God are supposed to be about, where our energy is supposed to be going, the thing that is at the core of God's plan for his people is community. And as I've said before in this room, there's a place to write this down in your notes. Community is not a commodity that can be sold or marketed or purchased. The primary thing that we have to offer this world is about being a place, or more accurately, a people that live differently, that love differently, that hope differently, that care differently, that shop and vote and work and give up their time and treasure differently. That consume differently. I think it's almost, almost like Christians are supposed to live in a different reality than the reality that we see all around us in a consumeristic culture. In a different world, a different dimension. Almost like an alternative universe that we're supposed to live in in the midst of this one. Do we have any fans in the room of a show called Stranger Things? A few, a handful of people. Well, the rest of you hopefully will get this. <laughs> There's this, this show that's a Netflix original that's set in the 1980s. And they just do this amazing job of kind of recreating the look and the feel and the little tiny details of my childhood. It's like a Sears catalog sprung to life and started a TV show. <laughs> Except those kids have way cooler toys than I did. <laughs> and one of the core elements of the story of the show is that there's this dimension, this other dimension that's called the... The upside down. Exactly. And the upside down is this alternative dimension that's just like this world, but the opposite. 
It's upside down. It has everything that there is just like in this world, except everything in that world is darker and creepier and scarier. It's a distortion of this reality. For instance, there's an arcade, because in the 80s, of course, arcades rocked. There's an arcade, but instead of being a really awesome tubular place, it's a scary, dark place. It's covered with vegetation. And for some reason in this world, everything about vegetation is scary. I'm not sure why we're so like enamored with scary stuff in our culture. Is the world not scary enough? <laughs> First world problem. The point is, there's this other dimension, this other reality. And the whole premise of the show is that somehow that reality has come into contact with our reality. There are portals in the membrane that separate that reality from this reality. And the kids in the show are somehow able to cross over into that other reality and experience that other reality. But perhaps more terrifyingly, a few of the scary things from that reality can break through and begin to affect this dimension, this reality. And while I know that Stranger Things is fiction... I think that in some ways, they're actually closer to the reality that we don't see. They are closer to the reality of this universe and the other universes than the way that we live our lives. We live as if this is the only reality there is. And I think they are closer to the truth. I think scripture says that there is a reality beyond the reality that we live. There is an upside down parallel reality that's just like that one. Just like the upside down in Stranger Things, except exactly the opposite. It's like the upside down of the upside down. I think scripture teaches that there is another reality to this reality, another dimension to this one, this one that we experience as real, but that reality is even realer. A dimension that's in many ways like this reality, but instead of being a scarier version, it's like this glorified, perfect, unbroken, beautiful version of this reality. A dimension where sickness doesn't win where evil doesn't triumph, where justice for everyone is a reality for even the most vulnerable, where everything is just as the creator intended it to be. And scripture has a name for this place, for this dimension. It's a place to write this in the you notes. Know, scripture calls this the kingdom of God. And Luke, the author of the gospel of Luke and its sequel, the book of Acts, which is sort of like season two, to, to Luke being season one. He tells the stories of the eyewitnesses to these stranger things, these miraculous things, eyewitnesses to these otherworldly upside down experiences when that other reality breaks in and touches and affects this reality. Eyewitnesses like, like a, an elderly priest named Zachariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth. These two people that had spent their entire lives filled with shame and sadness because they were unable to have kids. And then this other reality breaks into our reality. And an angel comes and says, you will have a child. Eyewitnesses like a young peasant girl named Mary who lived in the outskirts of nowhere. A suburb of not importantville who was just going about her meager life when this other dimension, the kingdom of God, broke into her reality and an angel said that she would have a child, not just any child, this adolescent, unmarried, peasant girl of no importance is going to give birth to a king. Luke says that the angel said, he will be very great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. 
His kingdom, this kingdom, will never end. Eyewitnesses, like some poor shepherds living even lower than the peasants, outcasts in societies, living on the very fringes of society, the lowest social class, the bottom of society. And then this other dimension breaks in and an army of angels appears and they declare the king has arrived. This new kingdom is here. The king has come to reign over all this world and is here now, but not in a palace. This is an upside down kingdom. In this kingdom, the king is born into a manger, into a stable with his poor peasant parents. It sounds like something from Stranger Things. I wonder why we're so quick to embrace the supernatural in our entertainment, especially when it's scary. And we're so reluctant to embrace the supernatural in our lives, especially when it offers hope. And then Luke, through the rest of this Gospel of Luke, part one of his series, tells the story of Jesus as he grew up and as he became a man, as he began his ministry and as he began teaching. And throughout his ministry, Jesus taught and he preached about this other reality, this other dimension, the good news of the kingdom of God. And he not only talked about it, he demonstrated it, he lived it, he embodied it to the people in whom he encountered. These moments where the reality, that other reality broke into ours. Many of us probably grew up knowing that the the meaning of the word gospel is good news. And at least in my tradition, the good news that I grew up with is that Jesus came into the world and Jesus was God and Jesus died for my sins and then was born and then was resurrected. And if I believed in him, I could have assurance of eternity with God if I died. And that is good news. That is great news. But that isn't primarily the good news that Jesus talked about anywhere in his ministry. When Jesus spoke of good news, it was almost always followed by the phrase, the good news of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is near, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Luke 4 is where Luke records Jesus beginning his ministry of teaching. And Jesus teaches what it looks like if he is king, what it looks like in this other upside down reality, the kingdom of God, what it looks like when that reality breaks into our reality and rules and reigns. Reading from Luke 4, starting in verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. It's quoting from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus gets up in the synagogue in front of these religious leaders and proclaims his prophecy and says, I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. I am the king who has come to reign in that kingdom. And the religious leaders don't receive that as good news. Like they try to kill him, they try to throw him over a cliff and miraculously, in a stranger thing sort of way, Jesus just disappears into midair. And chapter 4 continues with Jesus traveling around and continuing to bring this experience of the kingdom of God. Not simply teaching about it, but demonstrating and embodying it and living out this experience of the other kingdom among the people, healing the sick and casting out demons. And chapter 4 ends this way, verse 42. Early the next morning, Jesus went out to an isolated place. The crowd searched everywhere for him. 
And when they finally found him, they begged him not to leave. But he replied, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too. Because that is why I was sent. Everywhere Jesus went, he preached this good news of the kingdom of God. This new community, this new reality in which people could live. And then Jesus commissioned his own disciples to go out and preach and bring this new reality, this other dimension into the world around them. To bring it with them. To tell people that there's this whole new reality that you can live into. Starting in verse 1 of Luke 9. One day Jesus called together his 12 disciples and gave them power and authority to cast out all demons, to heal all diseases. Then he sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing on your journey, he instructed them. Don't take a walking stick, a traveler's bag, food, money, even a change of clothes. Wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. And if a town refuses to welcome you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show them that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So they began their circuit of the villages, preaching the good news and healing the sick. That's, that's so countercultural. That's so revolutionary to think that the church might look like that today. But I think part of what Jesus is saying that in my kingdom, the sick are healed. In my kingdom, the demons don't win. In my kingdom, my followers trust me. And they just go out in radical dependence that I will provide. In radical dependence on others. In my kingdom, they don't worry about whether they're going to be rejected. They just go. A couple of verses later in that same chapter, Jesus sort of demonstrates this and proves this. It says, starting in verse 10, when the apostles returned, they told Jesus everything they had done. Then he slipped away quietly with them toward the town of Bethsaida. The crowds found out where he was going and they followed him. He welcomed them and taught them about the kingdom of God. Because that was always his message. And he healed those who were sick. Because he always paired his message to the reality of that message. And then he miraculously fed more than 5,000 people. And the passage ends again with Jesus talking about this kingdom, this other dimension. Verse 27, I tell you the truth. Some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. And that's always been a tricky passage. I mean, throughout Christian history, I think that's been a tricky passage. So to say that I have the answer is, is perhaps overstated. But I think it's possible that that if we understand the kingdom of God exclusively as some far off distant hope that happens when the world ends. Then this is confusing. I mean at, at best Jesus is being vague and at worst he's being a liar. But if Jesus is instead saying no. And there's a place to write this in your notes. No. The good news of the kingdom starts now. It's a reality now that you can experience at least in part. As the sort of upside down Reality of the kingdom of God as it touches and interacts and breaks into this reality, this dimension, this kingdom. This reality that one day will be made complete and full. It will be the only reality, but now, even now, you can experience it. You can taste it. You can touch it. You can feel it. Some of you may be even able to see it. In chapter 10, in this chapter, we have a similar story of Jesus sending out not just 12 
of his disciples, but now it's 72 disciples. And it's very similar language that Luke records. Luke 10, starting in verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. And that harkens to some of the stories we're going to see in Acts. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your, the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Whether you accept it or not, we're telling you, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is among you. Many of us grew up hearing the Lord's Prayer, being taught the Lord's Prayer and reciting the Lord's Prayer. And in it, in Luke 11, Jesus' disciples come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And he replies, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And at least for me, growing as a child in the 80s, that was presented as, God, bring the end of the world. God, bring your kingdom here. Do the rapture thing where all the Christians are rescued. And, and perhaps there's some truth to that. But I think we also have to ask the question, is there not truth that Jesus is saying right now in this moment, Lord God, bring your kingdom in greater and greater ways into our reality. Feed us with our daily food. Give us the things that we need. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Bring that kingdom into our lives and into our reality. Now, and Jesus confirms that just a few passages later, the, the religious leaders come to him and say, accuse him that he is casting out demons in the name of the devil. For the kingdom of the devil. And Jesus replies, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The prophesied kingdom has come upon you because the king of that kingdom has arrived. And in the face of all these kind of stranger things, these miracles, these feedings, these healings, the religious community still doesn't believe. Luke 17 says this. One day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will this kingdom of God come? And you can almost hear the sarcasm in that. Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is or it's over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you. The question isn't whether or not it's arrived. It's whether or not you can see it. Whether or not you can experience that kingdom of God that's already among you. Luke 12 is Jesus teaching his disciples how to live into that new reality, that other dimension now. And he says it this way. And it's words that I think are shocking and difficult for us to process. He says, and don't be concerned about what to eat or what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. and He'll give you everything you need. So don't be afraid, little flock. For it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. To give you dominion. To give you the rule and reign. To let you be stewards of this kingdom that I have brought into this world. So what does that look like? He says, continuing, sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasures for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old to develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. Where your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. I think he's saying to us, live in, invest in that 
reality, in that dimension. The upside down reality where stuff doesn't rot and get stolen and rust and, and, and moths don't eat it. Where all the stuff you bought at Sears doesn't just clutter up your life. Seek the kingdom first. And then throughout the whole rest of the book of Luke, Jesus teaches people what it means to do that. What it means to seek the kingdom first in their lives. A kingdom where God alone is king. Where the rule and reign of God is on earth as it is in heaven. What it means to seek God's kingdom. And then Luke's first book, season one, ends with the so-called religious leaders. The godly men conspiring with the government to have Jesus executed, killed. And they hang a sign over his head that reads, King of the Jews. Mocking the very language that he had used throughout his whole ministry. Saying, yeah, this is what your kingdom looks like. And Jesus says, yes. It is. And he was killed and buried. But then a strange thing happens. That other reality breaks into this reality. And death doesn't win. Jesus wins. The king wins. And he's resurrected. And he appears to many and then Luke picks up the story where season one ends and season two, the book of Acts. And he opens this way. Chapter one, verse one. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in any, many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Jesus appeared to them with his new body. That, that was like his body of this reality. Where he could touch and feel and see the holes in his hands. And yet it was something better. It was something glorified. It was something different from this other reality. It was a foreshadowing, a taste of that reality. The reality of the kingdom of God. It's interesting. That while the book of Luke is so full of references to the kingdom of God. The book of Acts is, is actually fairly silent on the subject. I mean, it references it here in the opening verse and then the closing verses of the very last chapter of Acts. It says this, for the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. So the book of Acts, part two of the series opens with a reference to the kingdom of God, Jesus' teaching, and it closes with a reference of Paul continuing to teach this kingdom of God. But if it was so prevalent in Jesus' teaching, why is it not talked more, talked about more in part two of the book? And again, maybe this is speculation on my part. But I'd like to propose that just perhaps, first, I mean, book one was spent Jesus saying, this is what my kingdom looks like, teaching all about what it means to live in the kingdom. And, and then maybe in Part two of the series, it's actually Jesus' followers actually living it out. I know that seems radical to us. But it's full of these otherworldly, other dimensional stories where people actually sold their possessions and gave them to the poor. Where they actually went out on these ridiculous missionary journeys where they had to be dependent on the Holy Spirit and they had to be dependent on other believers. The whole story is them actually living in the kingdom of God. That Jesus had talked about all through book one. And I know that that just seems radical. They lived it out in life reordering ways. Like Chris talked about. Like he talked about. They lived it in religion reordering 
ways. I think it's worth noting that one of the only other times that the kingdom of God language is used in the book of Acts is kind of in the middle, in, in, in Acts chapter 19. And it's actually set against the kingdom of Paul's religion. The kingdom of God is presented as being opposed to religion. Let's read uh, chapter 19, starting in verse 8. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Jesus is, is following I'm sorry, Paul is following Jesus' playbook, like we saw right at the beginning of, of Luke. He's in the synagogue, and he's preaching to God's people, and he's boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God. And just like they had with Jesus, the religious establishment rejects him. Verse 9, but some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. They began criticizing and slandering this group of people, this, this new community called the way. Jesus had told his disciples that this would happen, that they would be rejected. And they are. Continuing to read. So Paul left the synagogue, and he took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years, so the people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. The religion that Paul had grown up in had dedicated his life to, the religion that Paul so loved, had rejected him, had rejected his message about this new reality that they could live in, this new kingdom of God. And so he left. He followed Jesus' playbook. Jesus had essentially done the same thing. You see the same progression. If you go back and read through the book of Luke, Jesus starts off praying, or starts off teaching in the synagogues and teaching in the temple. But increasingly throughout the whole book of Luke, you see Jesus moving away from the established religious infrastructure and institution and preaching on the hillsides and the seashores and in the marketplaces. And now Paul is doing the same thing. Where does it say he went? He said he went to the public square to the Hall of Tyrannus, a public auditorium. It's the equivalent of the Shoreview Community Center in Ephesus. (laughs) Away from all the trappings of religiousness. And there it says he had conversations. He built relationships. He invited questions. And he said he did it for the next two years. And as a result, it says that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks... Heard the word of the Lord. His leaving the synagogue, his leaving his religion, losing his religion, ended up impacting Jews and Gentiles throughout the entire province. Paul had to leave the comfort zone of all of his Jewish religion and kick the dust from his sandals to go where God was moving. And to tell them the kingdom of God is here, whether you accept it or not. Paul, in some ways, had to lose his religion to find where God was moving. So what does that mean for us? I mean, does it mean that church buildings are bad? That anything that looks like religion is bad? That we should cancel youth group and worship services and abandon our buildings and all the trappings of organized religion and just go on the hillsides and lakeshores and public squares and start preaching like Paul did? Like Jesus did, like set up in Rosedale Mall right next to the sunglass kiosk to start preaching? No, not necessarily. But I think those questions are valid and they need to be asked. I think those questions need to inform our decisions about where our ministry is happening, who our audience is, 
how and when we do invest in buildings and infrastructure and these different pieces. I think it needs to inform how and where we exist as a church that's distributed, that is out in the community having conversations and building relationships and bringing the experience of God, the experience of the kingdom of God, this otherworldly experience into our reality. I think that it means if we want to be the kingdom of God, if we want to experience God and move where God is moving, then it's so much more than just gathering for an hour on a week and singing some songs. I think most of the time, what's seeking the kingdom of God first is going to look like for us is going to look a whole lot like what it did for the original disciples whom Jesus sent. Exactly. Where did he send them and to whom did he send them? It probably looks a lot like that. It looks like living and moving and acting in the places where God is moving and acting. It's almost like there's this barrier that exists between our reality and their reality. This, this membrane, this wall between these two dimensions, these two kingdoms. And that barrier is at its thinnest. At its most transparent. At its easiest to break through. Where you can get a glimpse of that other reality. When we are among the people that Jesus listed in his inaugural address. When we are among the people that Jesus was among and that his disciples were among. It's when we're willing to go to the sick and the homeless. And bring expectation that God is there and that God is moving and that God is working. And inviting us to bring good news into that reality. It's then that the barrier between the realities breaks and that kingdom's realities touch ours. It's when we're willing to go to the poor and the prisoner and the orphan and the widow and the prostitute and the addict, the marginalized of our society. It's then that we get a taste, a glimpse, a touch of that other reality where hate doesn't win, where sickness doesn't win, where the addictions don't win and where the demons flee. It's when we are among the hungry that where we see the other reality break through. It's when we go to the places where we are so far out of our comfort zones that we know just how dependent we are on God's Holy Spirit working in us and through us because we can't do it. It's there that we are most able to see that kingdom. And perhaps more importantly, to learn to see that kingdom within our own context you see it's not that god's kingdom isn't here in our context in our religion in our workplace and schools in our suburban lives it is but i think sometimes it's harder to see that reality in ours in our suburban lives through the context of the walls of our context of our comfort the walls of our own self-sufficiency I'm just not sure it's easy to see God's kingdom when you're looking at a 500-page glossy happiness. But if we can learn to see, if we can learn to enter into God's kingdom, to see that kingdom everywhere, then we are able to experience that kingdom of God in every moment of our lives, to live as citizens of that kingdom. And that's what we see throughout the book of Acts. That's the kind of kingdom community that we're trying to be. 
A church who is intentionally chosen to meet in a community center in a room that most of the week is used for wedding receptions and business meetings and kids programs and fairs. To be at the heart of our community. A church that's just started offering an alpha class that embraces questions and explores who God is and, and what he's doing in this world and how we can get to know him and allows people to bring all of their questions and all of their brokenness. And we're doing that not here, but in a coffee shop in the community where anyone is welcome to come, no matter what they're at that journey. A church that's intentionally building a community of small churches that meet in homes and fellowship together and pray together and dig into God's word together and hopefully begin to bring our whole selves to those communities where it's safe to bring our hurts and our doubts and our questions and our pains and experience understanding and support and love. It is in those moments we experience the kingdom of God in fresh and new ways. It's like being a church that tackles tough subjects like we're starting next week in a series called At What Cost? looking at the subject of sex trafficking and asking the very hard questions of what does it look like for us to impact this very real problem? How do we bring the hope and the light of that other reality into this broken and dark, upside-down darkness that is in this reality? Asking the questions how our everyday choices and the ways in which we consume actually contribute to the problem, looking at practical ways that we can be a part of ushering God's kingdom into this reality. I don't think ultimately we're going to fix any of this by changing our image, by making ourselves more hip or contemporary. It's about asking the question, are we actually relevant? Are we actually being the community that God called us to be? It's about us actually being relevant, being the kingdom of God. That's a present reality, not just a future hope. The kingdom of God, the other upside down reality is here. And now, will we learn to see it, learn to live in it, and invite others to experience it with us? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word, for these stories where we can see your plan, where we can get glimpses of the reality into which you are calling us, your heart for us, your desire that we would experience the goodness that you have for us. God, thank you for involving us in your mission in this world. And God, forgive us for the ways in which we've made this about us. We've made this about our comfort and our preferences, about our club. God, as we close this series, I pray that you would be breaking our hearts for the things that break your heart. You'd be giving us a vision of the so much more that you have in store for us if we're willing to just radically follow you like the early church did. To radically reorder our lives towards your kingdom. God, help us to be dependent on you and on your Holy Spirit. To be dependent on one another as we go about accomplishing your mission, your kingdom in this world. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.